Good morning. It is a pleasure to be with you all uh, again in Bruton this morning. If you will turn either in your bulletin or in your Bible to 1 Corinthians, Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 1, we will be looking at verses 18 through 31. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. But as you're turning, let me ask you this. When you think of the term wisdom, what images come into your head? Now, I often imagine an old man simply sitting on a rock and contemplating the meaning of life. Others see scientists giving a lecture to either other professors or to students. But very few in the world, when they think about wisdom, what wisdom truly is, rarely think of a pastor leading a congregation and reading the Word of God. Now, you see, much in the world would see what we're doing today as a waste of our time. Instead of listening to a person preach the gospel, one would rather watch football or would watch their new popular celebrity or YouTube influencer speak on political issues. And so in many cases, the world finds wisdom in people and not in God. And so unfortunately, that view is not exclusive to our time. Consider 1 Corinthians. The church at Corinth had a similar problem. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, he writes to them in a time of division. Many in the church are actually forming groups and factions around their favorite pastors and teachers. Some say, I am of Paul. Some say, I am of Cephas. I am of Peter. And the others say, I am of Apollos. And so many of them actually split into these factions because they believe that only one specific person has true wisdom over against all the other ministers of the Word of God. And as a result, they boast about whose camp they're in. And so Paul here seeks to remind the Corinthian church, and by application, to us, that we're not to seek wisdom like the world does, but instead look to where true wisdom comes from. Let us turn to the word of the Lord and hear what Paul and the Lord has to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. Hear the word of the Lord. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. And Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers." 
Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. May it be a blessing to all who hear, read, and obey it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the foolishness of preaching. Father, as as I speak, let me not truly speak, but let you speak through me. Your servants long to hear your word. We long to hear from you. So we ask that you speak to us. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Now, in this passage, I want to point out three things for us. First, the message of God's wisdom. Second, the rejection of God's wisdom. And third, the acceptance of God's wisdom. So let's begin with the first. Let's begin with the message. Look at the beginning of our passage in verse 18. Paul says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This verse really is the main idea for Paul's message to the Corinthians, and it is the main idea for us today. Paul tells his readers that the message of Jesus, the message of Christianity as a whole, has two responses. It's either accepted or It's rejected. And what's amazing here is that your response to the gospel actually reveals your spiritual state. You either love the gospel or you hate it. (laughs) There's no middle ground here. Even Even being apathetic to the gospel is still a no. And what's what I might point out here is that this rejection, this no, is not simply a plain no to the gospel message. Paul says that the unbeliever views the message of the cross as folly. The term used is folly in your ESV. Other translations use the term foolishness, but Paul in the original language uses a stronger term. In the Greek, he uses the term moria or moriah, which is where actually we get the term moron from. So the the world actually sees the gospel as the height of moronic foolishness, while we, who are being saved, see the gospel as the very power of God unto salvation. To us, it is literally life from the dead. But why is that? Why do we see the gospel as life from the dead? Because the message of the cross is the fulfillment of God's sovereign plan. Paul actually supports his point in verse 18 by going back to the Old Testament. Listen to what the word of God says in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people. 
with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. God has always been in the business of refuting the wisdom of those who reject him. We, in our sin and in our rebellion, think that we can obtain heaven or obtain true happiness through our own works, or what we claim to be true wisdom. I mean, <laughs> just look at all of the false religions that the human mind has come up with since its existence. Look at Hinduism. Look at Buddhism. Look at the Wiccans and other pagan religions. Even look at cults like Mormonism, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, or even Islam. And, and every single one of these particular pagan religions tell you that if you follow these set of rules, or if you follow this specific person, then you will find happiness or obtain salvation. But let's not consider just these false religions. Let's look into our secular society as a whole. The secular world promotes things like atheism and agnosticism, a denial of the existence of God. Our society proclaims that we can be good without God and that we can obtain true wisdom without God. But in the process, we end up murdering our own children. And this society still cannot figure out what a man is and what a woman is. And the world calls that true wisdom. But on the other hand, God is in the purpose, God is in the business of turning things upside down. While the world tries to obtain wisdom on its own, God has chosen to take our wisdom and toss it out. While our worldly wisdom is brought to nothing, God instead has taken his sovereign pleasure to bring truth to the worlds by means of this foolish gospel. It is through faith in the message that we preach, not by doing good deeds or by following some human leader that actually saves us. Now, while the world does not see preaching as making sense at all, God sees it as the means by which he glorifies himself. God sees it as the means by which he confounds the wise. And God sees it as the means by which he saves those who believe. So my friends, does this realization not affect how you view preaching? Is the proclamation of the gospel important to you? I mean, I'm not saying this just as the guy preaching. I'm a pastoral intern, but this still is a very relevant question. Do you see it merely as a part of your Sunday morning or your Sunday morning routine where you sit down and listen to a guy talk for about 20 to 30 minutes while your mind trails off to do other things? Trust me, you guys can easily admit it because I've done it before. I'm guilty of this too. Or do we see the preaching of the gospel as the way in which we participate in the very plan of God. My friends, the preaching of the word, both audibly when you hear me preach and visibly in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, is the crux of Reformed worship. It is the center of Reformed worship. Here is where we hear from God. It's where we hear his promises. And it's where we are called to wholly trust in him 
and not in ourselves. You see, if you understand that the preaching of the gospel, I want you to understand that the preaching of the gospel is more powerful than anything we could ever imagine, anything we could ever fathom. The very Spirit of God, God himself, is at work through the gospel and also through you in the preaching of the gospel so that you might hear, so that you might understand, and so that you might believe. My friends, God is sovereign in the foolishness of preaching. Amen? Amen. And so now that we've seen the message of God's wisdom, let's look at the reasons of why that message is rejected. Look at verses 22 through 25. Hear the word of the Lord. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul turns to focus on the reasons that men reject the gospel. First, he turns to the Jews, his own people according to the flesh. They sought to validate Jesus on their own terms by requesting a sign from him. If you look into the New Testament, if you look into the story of the gospels, we see the Jewish leaders hounding Jesus over and over and over again to give them a sign so that they might believe. Instead of submitting to the will of Christ, the Jewish leaders demand that he be their miracle worker, in other words, their lapdog, in order for them to believe in him. In short, they wanted Jesus to do what they wanted first in order for them to submit. Now, that doesn't make any sense. The Gentiles, likewise, wanted Christianity to come to them with huge philosophical words and concepts that would blow their minds. They wanted the faith, the Christian faith, to be like other places of wisdom, to be like the Epicureans or, or the Stoics, people who would spend most of their time sitting on a rock and thinking. But what both of these groups have in common is this. They wanted Christ and Christianity to cater to them. They wanted the Christian faith to be just like them. Instead of submitting to God as who he says he is, they instead want a God of their own making. But again, our God is in the business of turning things upside down. Instead of catering to man's will, he gives us a crucified Messiah. The world's expectations are thrown into disarray. The Jews find that a stumbling block, both back then and now. I mean, they viewed the Messiah dying as a contradiction. Christ is supposed to conquer his enemies, not die for them. And the Jews likewise view it as foolishness. Now, why would the God of the universe come into the world just to die? And not only die but die a horrible, horrible death. Mind you, crucifixion was the most painful and tragic death in the first century. 
It was never actually used on Roman citizens. It was only used for the lowest of criminals. And for many, the word crucifixion was like a four-letter word to them. They would never mention it in polite conversation. And yet, the God of the universe planned to save the world by having the Messiah go through such a horrible death? A foolishness, they cry. And the world today is not very much different from the first century. Though many, many in our world today see the crucifixion as just utter nonsense. They have no need for a crucified Christ. And so, instead, they ridicule and insult Christianity and its believers. I mean, <laughs> why would you need a crucified God to save you when you have people like Muhammad? When you have people like the Dalai Lama? Or people like Oprah to guide you? I mean, just think about it. Just, just think about how the world views this gospel. God, the creator of the universe, sends his son not into the 21st century, but into the first century. He's born by a poor Jewish woman under the boot of the Roman Empire. Not a very good place for a king. He's also placed in the backwater part of the world in a place called Israel which is pretty much a speck in the Roman Empire. He's given a common name, Joshua, and works as a carpenter, basically a blue-collar worker for most of his life. And then he preaches to the nation of Israel for about three years, only to be rejected by his people, to be spit upon, to be mocked, and then hung on a cross and killed. You see, that's not the Jesus that the world will like. That's not a Jesus that the world finds reasonable. So if the world wants Jesus, he must look exactly like the way the world wants him to. He must be a God of love and no wrath. He must be a God of radical inclusivity, as they say. And it's a God who will allow everything under the sun but holiness and righteousness. And because God has given them the exact opposite, the world, instead of submitting to God, hunkers down in its rebellion and views the gospel as a message of bigotry, a message of foolishness, and should be regarded with utter disdain. And so let me ask you this. Does the message of the gospel sound ridiculous to you? Hmm? Do you see it as utter nonsense? Do you see the gospel in the way that I described it earlier, or do you see it as the way Paul and the rest of the apostles did? Do you see Jesus as he who, though he was in the very form of God, in the very nature of God, did not count in quality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held onto, but instead emptied himself? The KJV renders it as made himself of no reputation. And being made in the likeness of man, he took upon the form of a servant. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the Father to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and has given him a name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. My friends, is that your confession? 
Is that your view of the gospel? If so, own it. Own it. But, but Jeremiah, what, what do you mean? How do we own it? By proclaiming it boldly to others. Proclaim the gospel boldly. As you go out and spread the gospel, which I hope you are, don't change or mince any word of the gospel in order to make it fit the world's sensibilities. Now, am I telling you to be rude or to come off as uncaring? No, not at all, not at all. But what I'm saying is this. Don't ever compromise on the truth of the gospel. Don't ever mess with this gospel. Trust in the Holy Spirit to take the word of God and make it effective in your lives and the lives of those whom you witness to. Let that gospel motivate you to tell those who see the gospel as foolishness that God has spoken. He has spoken in his word and he has spoken in history and that you as a sinner are lost and on your way to destruction. But God out of his sheer love, has given you a path to life in his son. Repent and believe in the gospel, for he forgives those who call on him. And so as we've seen the message of God's wisdom and the rejection of God's wisdom, we now come to the acceptance of God's wisdom. Yes, there are many who reject the gospel, and many cannot obtain the truth of the gospel because they seek it through human wisdom. And others reject it because the gospel is foolishness to them. So that leads us to a pretty good question. Why do others accept the gospel? Why do Christians see the gospel as the very power of God? Paul answers that question for us when he turns to the believers at the end of this chapter. Turn to verses 26 through 31. Hear the word of the Lord. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is, foolishness, what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And it's because of him, meaning God, it is because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, Paul turns to his audiences and uses them as living examples of his point. They did not come to faith because of their worldly standing or because of their own wisdom. That isn't to say that Christianity doesn't have rich and powerful people in it or that it doesn't have smart people within it. But what Paul is reminding us is that none of these things that he has listed warrant people to come to faith. It's not because people are rich enough or powerful enough or smart enough to accept the gospel. Instead, God chose to use the lowly things in the world to shame the wise. Once more, our God is in the business of turning things 
upside down. He is in the business of taking things that the world despises and transforming them into the things that glorify him. One thing that I love most about this passage is that Paul uses the word called here in verses 24 and in verse 26. This passage, this word really takes us back to Romans chapter 8, where Paul talks about God's sovereign election and his effectual call to salvation. We all know the passage well. For we know that God works all things together for good to those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is part of God's sovereign election that leads to salvation. The reason why the Corinthians are saved is not because of anything in them, but instead because of God's sovereign love for them. He chose them to be saved before the foundation of the world, and he called them unto himself by this gospel of foolishness. He reinforces this point when he says that it is by his doing, it is by God's doing, that you are in Christ Jesus. It's not because of their intellect. It's not because of their social status or anything they could have mustered up within themselves. The only reason that they are saved is because of a five-letter word, both in, both in English and in Greek, called grace. Only because of grace. And this truth is not only evident in the Corinthians, but in the apostles too. I mean, just think about it. God chose normal people. He chose outcasts and lowlifes of the world to send his message. He chose fishermen, a tax collector, a zealot, and even a Pharisee to proclaim his gospel of redemption. These are people who you'd never expect, whom the first century world would never expect. But through this motley gang of misfits, <laughs> you and I stand here today believing in the gospel that they proclaimed. You see, and not only the Gospels, not only the, not only the Apostles, but consider Israel itself. Listen to what Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love upon you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God did not love Israel because they were great in number or because they were holy. If anything, the passage already notes that they were one of the fewest of all peoples. And we know from looking at the rest of the Old Testament that Israel was a bunch of whiny babies. <laughs> they always complained and rebelled against God. It wasn't because of, because of their holiness. In fact, it was because of the complete opposite. God loved them because he loved them. That's simply it. God loved them out of his pure grace, out of his pure mercy, and because he sought to be faithful to his gracious promises. My friends, 
God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies those He calls. And He doesn't love those who love Him first. We love Him because He loved us first. So what about you, Christian? What about you? Why are you saved? Why have you accepted the gospel while those who simply drive across the street do not? Why are you here and they are outside? It is because you, is, is it because you're better than them? Is it because you're smarter than them? Is it simply because you made a better choice than them? Are you choice meets? <laughs> not at all. It's because God has set his love upon you. In the midst of your guilt and your shame, God looked at you and he chose you before the foundation of the world. He set, he set your love upon his son who loved you and who died for you. He sent his son to take on your likeness. He sent his son to live a life that you could never live. And he sent his son to die a death that you and I both deserve. And he was raised in order to bring you life. And in God's appointed time, through the foolishness of preaching, the Holy Spirit turned your heart from someone who saw the gospel as moronic foolishness and turned it so that you might love the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is the reason that you are in Christ. The reason you are saved is only because of Jesus. Glory be to his name. So, we have seen that the message of the cross is foolishness to the world. But because of God's sovereign grace, it is true life from the dead to us. This leaves me with one final question for you. Who are you boasting in? Who are you identifying yourself with? Paul says that God's sovereign grace has been given to us in such a way so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So, who are you trusting in? Are you trusting in the wisdom of the world in order to make your life better? Are you trusting in politicians or scientists to tell you how to live your life? Are you listening to the people who you see on a TV screen tell you what you need to do in order to be saved? My friends, those things will only lead you to despair, pain, and death. Let your boasting, let your true identity be in Christ. And so, if you are under the sound of my voice today and you are not a believer, I beg you to hear the message of the gospel and do not harden your heart while the day is still today. You are a sinner headed for destruction, but God, out of his great love for sinners like you and like me, has come down and died the death that we deserve. Oh, but he did not stay dead. He rose again and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and is now interceding for us. And so if you repent, if you turn and believe in him, your foolishness will be traded for his wisdom. Your lawlessness will be traded for his righteousness. And your unruliness will be traded for his holiness. You will be his. And you will be able to affirm with all of those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ 
that I am not ashamed of the gospel. And this is my father's world. What can I fear from the folly of men? Let's pray. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the foolishness of preaching. We thank you for showing us that it is not us. It is not because of us that we are in your care. But it is because you have set your love upon us. You have called us by your name. And you have redeemed us by the blood of your beloved Son. Cause us to go out today remembering that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.